This is Wide Margins Episode 39, Failed Test and a Gracious God. Before I get started, I want to tell you about a new book that I am excited about. It's entitled, Do You Know Your Jesus? Uh, the author is Brandon Renfro, and uh, Brandon graciously asked me to write the foreword for this book, and I was very proud to do so. I'm uh, really excited about this book. It's, of course, an important subject, Jesus. And uh, Brandon writes with a lot of passion, but he also writes in a very readable way. I, I don't know how to explain it to you other than that. It's fun to read, and some people really struggle with that. They're looking for something to read, but they get really discouraged with some books. And uh, this is one that I would not hesitate for a minute to recommend, both for its content, its subject matter, the uh, way that Brandon handles Scripture, and also for its readability. It's just, it's, it's a great book. It's not very long, and uh, I think you can pick it up for like $5 on Amazon. So pause the podcast if you can. Go to Amazon.com, look up Do You Know Your Jesus by Brandon Renfro, and order 10 to 50 copies. You'll be glad you did. Uh, this makes a great gift, by the way, for others, especially uh, some friends of yours that may not go to church, maybe looking and searching. This is a good introductory book, but it doesn't deal in the usual fundamental matters. Uh, it's a great addition to those books that you would give to a friend who's just wanting to know more about Jesus. Great starting place, great for mature Christians as well that want to deepen their love and appreciation for Christ. So go out and get the book, uh, order it from Amazon today. That's the best way to get it. And uh, let me know what you think. If you like it, uh, love to hear some feedback. And I can tell you, as somebody who has some books on Amazon, uh, the best thing that you can do for an author is to leave a review on Amazon. It just helps it get in front of more eyes and it lets the author know that you appreciated him. So do that for Brandon and uh, pick it up. It's really good. Okay, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob. The series is entitled Favored Cheat. And Jacob so far has done his share of cheating others and manipulating. And he's going to be on the receiving end of that as well. Today we're going to talk about his wives though. A lot of people, I'm sure, are curious about them, and uh, they are an interesting study. And uh, we're going to deal with their trials in particular. I'm talking about Leah and Rachel. Now, both of them had their share of trials. Leah's word for trials is the word affliction. After her first son, Reuben, was born, she said, "'The Lord has looked upon my affliction.'" Genesis 29:32 Rachel, her sister, her word for trials is more vivid than just affliction. Her word for trials is wrestlings. When her servant Bilhah bore Jacob Naphtali, she said, "With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed." That's Genesis 30 verse 8. We're going to look at Leah and Rachel, the wives of Jacob, as they struggle with their trials. And we're not looking at them as examples. We're not studying them 
because they were very good at dealing with trials. Quite the opposite. If there was a wrong move, they made it. But their story is important. It's not a story like Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. It's not Joseph in prison or David and Goliath. It's a story of two women encountering trials and failing. But we need to study these stories along with the triumphs of the heroes of faith. The stories of triumph are important. They show that faith leads to success and happiness. But here's where stories of failure come in handy. Uh, First of all, they're handy because we are very familiar with failure. But they're also handy because they show us that failure in matters of faith, that doesn't have to be the end of our story because we have a gracious God, a God of second chances. And that's what we see in Leah and Rachel. These are trials. What's a trial? Trials are tests. And tests are made up of two components. First of all, every test has a problem. The problem is the blank on the paper, the multiple choices, the blank space after an open-ended question. It isn't a test unless there's some missing pieces that you have to figure out. When we encounter a test in life, we're tempted to say, this doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. It's a test, and every test has a problem. But there is a second component as well. The second component of a test is an underlying purpose. There is a reason for every test. The blanks on the history test are there to prove whether you comprehend the Spanish-American War. And the purpose behind every test is not always as clear as it is in History 101. Sometimes part of the test is not fully knowing what the purpose is. The purpose is not, mind you, for God's benefit. God's not running diagnostics on his world to see who is on his side. He already knows who is on his side. We are the ones who benefit from the trials. There's an African proverb that says, Smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. The religion of the Bible is about reality. It's about real-life situations. So God tests us so that we learn how to practice our faith instead of keeping it in a nice, clean jar on the mantle. God tests us to bring out the best in us, to, to help us live life better. And that's what he's doing with Leah and Rachel throughout the story today. So we're going to look at the problem of their tests, and then we're going to look at the purpose. And hopefully it'll be helpful to you in a practical way, because I'm sure everybody listening today is is dealing with tests in some way, shape, or form. Let's, Let's look at the problem. There are at least three separate trials that we can see in in the text and all three are common problems with which everyone is either directly or indirectly acquainted with the first one is a very very common trial in life a failing marriage Leah's marriage to Jacob was the result of her father Laban's trickery so it's no surprise that they had marriage problems Uh, she was a part of a polygamous relationship that's going to be fraught with problems. So we learn in Genesis 29 verse 31 that Jacob loved Rachel and that he hated Leah. And 
that may be a strong way of putting it, and the hate here may not be in the absolute sense. It may be a hatred of comparison, which you see sometimes in the Bible. A better rendering may be that she was unloved. Of Jacob's two wives, Rachel was clearly the favorite. She was loved, and Leah was not loved. That's the situation. And this problem was common enough in those days for it to be addressed in the Law of Moses, where it said there that if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and offspring are born to the unloved woman first, the man may not bestow the birthright upon a child of his loved wife. That privilege has to go to his actual firstborn, even though that son came from the unfavored wife. That's the law in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. I realize that Jacob wasn't living under that covenant. This is all prior to that, but it shows God's heart in the matter and how he codified some things to protect women in Leah's situation. Leah thought that the solution to her problem was to bear more children than Rachel. And so she just starts bearing as many children as she possibly can. And you have her feelings on the matter described for you in the names that she gives to her sons. Uh, The firstborn was Reuben. And when he was born, she made a play on words with his name saying, Genesis 29, 32, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Her plan didn't work. For she conceived again and bore Simeon and said this, verse 33, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She named her third son Levi, which in Hebrew sounds like the word for attached. And she said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Sadly, when her fourth son Judah was born, She seems to have made an adjustment in her expectations of her love from her husband, and all the wishful thinking is gone, and she satisfies herself with the joy over having a fourth son, saying, This time I will praise the Lord. Then she bears Jacob a sixth son, Zebulun, and says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. She gave Jacob, six tribes, half a nation, but that didn't solve her marital problems. I realize that there are very few, if any, people listening to this podcast who struggle with the same special trials that come from polygamy and being married to the same man as your sister. Still, marriage in itself is a test. Marriage can be very challenging. You know, most people will tell a young couple entering into marriage, This is going to be hard. It's not always going to be easy. You're going to run into rough patches. And all of that is true. But it was especially true for Leah. That was one of the problems of the test that we encounter. There is a second example. The example of infertility. While Leah was dealing with a failing marriage, and really Rachel was too, although she may not have recognized the the problem that polygamy had brought to her, The greater test for Rachel was infertility. Rachel struggling with it in chapter 30, when we come to verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. 
She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob's so comforting in this in this area. To understand Rachel's desperation, you have to understand a little bit about women in that time frame. She's literally suicidal over this. Why? Having children was part of your identity as a woman in that society. Women were not valued. They were oppressed. They were mistreated severely in the best situations. They, they just weren't valued as full, complete human beings, especially if they couldn't have children. And so even if they had supportive husbands like Hannah did in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, they still had this societal way of looking at things. They, they had trouble escaping. Jacob could have been very supportive of Rachel, but still she had this expectation upon herself, I have to have children or I'm not worth anything as a woman. Thankfully, I feel that we've overcome that, but infertility is still very difficult. There's a proverb in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16 that say, Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Unlike her mother-in-law, Rebecca, or Hannah in 1 Samuel, Rachel doesn't rely on prayer through her trial. Instead, she takes matters into her own hands, which is kind of becoming a family business by now. She gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob so that she could give birth on her behalf. Literally, the the idiom there is to give birth on my knees, which may literally have been what happened. Surrogacy is what's going on here, and it may have been common. Jacob's grandparents obviously turned to it as a solution, but nothing in God's Word says that God approved of that kind of thing. So she tried that, a surrogate in Bilhah. She also used mandrakes, which was an herb with yellow tomato-like fruit and a fleshy root that was believed at the time to be useful for fertility. Maybe it was, probably it wasn't, but she's desperate and looking for anything. She even makes a bargain with her sister Leah, which is disturbing. Uh, Reuben is out gathering mandrakes for his mother, Leah, and Rachel goes to Leah and says, give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah said, no way, I'm not doing that. You stole my husband from me. I'm not giving you my fertility medication, basically. And Rachel says, I'll make a deal with you. You can sleep with Jacob tonight if I can have your mandrakes. And they shake hands on the deal. And Jacob's just kind of the the dopey husband coming in from the fields. And Rachel says, you're sleeping with my sister tonight. And he just shrugs his shoulders, okay, and goes and conceives another child with Leah. Very, very weird, disturbing family dynamic here. Infertility, though, can can be very emotional, very painful. I speak from experience. My wife and I have been through this before, and you never know till you go through it the kinds of things people expect of you and the hurtful things that people can say to you, even when they're oddly trying to be supportive. I remember an older gentleman at my church 
kept saying to me over and over again, don't wait until you have enough money or till you're successful enough to have children. You'll never have enough money to have children. And I guess that's just something that he said to young people without children. Um, I, I don't know. I let you know. He said it once, and I said, "Yeah, you know, I know that's it's not about the money for us." He said it a second time. I let it go. The third time, I just felt like I I had to say something to him before he said this to my wife, and I said, "You know, have you ever thought that maybe?" We're trying to have children, and it's just not working right now. And obviously he had not thought about that or many other things, and he apologized, but it's very painful to go through that. And that's just one example of many, many other hurtful things that that were said to us. And many of you know what I'm talking about. I can't imagine what has been said to you. The capacity for saying stupid things in human beings is limitless, and I include myself in that. But it's very painful, and that's just one component of it. You know, the other component is you're trying to have children, and you think that's a good thing. God wants parents, Christian parents in the world. he wants good things for his children. I'm trying to live obediently to him. I'm praying. I'm going to the doctor. I'm taking all these awful medications. I'm, I'm trying to do what's right. The doctor says there's no medical reason why I can't have children. No one seems to understand. It's, it's a really tough thing. It's a test. The problem is there. Let, let's go to the third one. The third one that we see in these sisters, and that's expectedly a rivalry between them. Leah is fertile but unloved. Rachel is loved but barren. Both are married to the same man. Is it any surprise that they're going to have some personal issues between them? You see it in the bargaining for the mandrakes, and both of the sisters appear to be obsessed with who's winning the battle. Bilhah conceives a second son for Rachel, and she says, Chapter 30, verse 8, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. It got so bad that when she received a son, she didn't rejoice over having a child. She gloated over winning a battle over her sister. So I want to make a few observations based on these three trials or tests, the the problem component of the test. The first is that trials are subjective. That's that. What that means is what may be a trial for one person may not seem all that bad to another. Infertility for some people is a complete nightmare, but then there's some people that don't even want children. And what that means is the problem component of our trials is not created by the circumstances themselves, but by our response to the circumstances. And what that means is, if it's in our power to create the problem, it's in our power to overcome it by the way we respond to the problem. The next observation I want to make on this is that trials are common and they are natural. They are a part of everyday life. Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. These women, Leah and Rachel, 
are dealing with marital problems, infertility, rivalry, nothing flashy here. This is everyday stuff. And it's interesting, we often blame God for these things, for the natural, ordinary trials, but then we question Him when He doesn't deliver us in some flashy, miraculous, supernatural way. But you you can't have it both ways. Just as God allows us to be tested through ordinary life, He will deliver us providentially through natural, ordinary, sometimes very slow means on His timing, not on ours. Now, maybe that helps us get a little perspective on the problem component of tests, but we're not finished until we talk about the purpose. There is a problem, and then there's a purpose. And the way that you emerge from your trials successfully is to focus on the purpose and not get overwhelmed by the problem. A statement attributed to T. Pierce Brown says, Not everything that happens is God's will, but in everything that happens, God has a will. Believe it. There's meaning in your suffering. You must look for it or you'll be lost. Looking for the purpose behind your trials means more than just calling on God or rallying Him to your side. You can call on God and still get it wrong. Leah and Rachel did. Leah looked at almost every birth as evidence that God was on her side and that he would bring her favor in the eyes of her husband. Look at the names of the children again. Every time she's saying something like um, with Reuben, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Or with uh, Simeon, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son. Or Levi, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And she was wrong. This wasn't necessarily God solving her marital problems. That wasn't her in his purpose to to do that. When Dan was born, Rachel said, God has vindicated me. She imagined that this was God's way of giving her the upper hand over her sister. But she was wrong. So it's not as simple as just saying, look here, see this? This is a sign that God's on my side. During the Cold War, Bob Dylan wrote a song entitled With God on Our Side. And one of the stanzas, every stanza has this kind of meaning, but if you're familiar with Bob Dylan, it would double the length of this podcast for me to quote the whole song. We'll stick to one stanza. And it says... But now we got weapons of the chemical dust. If fire them, we're forced to, then fire them we must. One push of the button and a shot the worldwide. And you never ask questions when God's on your side. His point was, every war has been fought in which every side has thought God's on my side. But there were winners and there were losers, and throughout the lens of history, it's difficult to see whether God was really on either side. We're not talking about claiming God is on our side, rallying Him to our cause. The meaning of trials is found in trusting God, making Him the meaning, and removing ourselves from the center of the purpose. Trials are an exercise in the real world 
whereby we prove our dependency upon him and no one else. Now, here is a philosophical question that I think is very helpful whenever you're trying to figure out why you're going through trials and tests. Here's the question. Is faith real if it has never been used? Think about it in terms of love. Can love exist if there's no object for love? I've thought about that question a lot with love when it comes to God. John says that God is love, meaning love is an essential attribute of God's character. I've heard people before say that we were created to give God somebody to love. That would assume that there was a time in which God never loved before creation. They forget, of course, that God is made of three personalities, Father, Son, and Spirit. And being a tripersonal God, He could love within Himself. In fact, Jesus says as much in John 17, verse 24. No, you can't love without an object, but God has always been his own object, not in an arrogant way or self-centered way or narcissistic way, but the three personalities of God make a self selfless, sacrificial love possible within the Godhead. It's another one of those marvelous mysteries about God. Well, faith also requires something to exercise it. It has to be practiced for it to exist. And that's the hard thing about faith. We all want faith because the scripture is very clear that we can't be saved without it. But in order to have faith, you've got to have a trial. Peter's point in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 is that your faith has to be tested. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James also writes about this in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That is, who relies on God throughout the whole ordeal. Blessed is this man. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Through our trials, we discover what the psalmist discovered when he said, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. That's Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. That's what trials are all about. That's the purpose, to develop our faith and draw us closer to God. I've heard it said before that that God brings us closer to Him in three ways. There are three tools that can bring us in a closer relationship with Him, and those are prayer, the Word of God, and if we're not giving attention to those two, the last resort is trials, discipline, suffering. If it weren't for suffering, I wonder if we all would be lost. As much as we hate to admit it, we we need it. 
Okay, so what happens if we failed the test? We're looking at two examples here in Leah and Rachel, I believe, of, of women who failed the test. If we fail the test, we don't gain the blessing of genuine faith. We don't get steadfastness. We don't gain a greater dependence upon God. But this is why we study stories of failure, like Leah and Rachel and many, many other biblical characters. We study these stories because we learn that God is gracious, and our failure doesn't have to be the end of the story. Keep reading. After all of Rachel's mistakes, we read in Genesis 30, 22 and following, that God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach, and called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. I don't know if anyone knew God's grace better than the Apostle Paul. He'd failed a number of trials, but God didn't give up on him, and After his conversion, he wrote to Christians in Rome who were suffering intense persecution, and he said, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That phrase, all things, is big enough to include the triumphs of faith and also all of the failures. Even the sin and the mistakes... God can work it all together for our good. Somehow, he's able to take our transcripts full of F's and turn them into a passing grade. And all that is required, according to that great statement of Paul, is found there in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Two things, namely, that we're called. And that simply means that we're called through the gospel. You can look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. I know that people feel that you have to have some mysterious, even miraculous calling beyond the good news of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in the New Testament, but I believe that the calling is universal and most people just don't respond to it. It's there in the gospel. We're called, so when you answer the call, that that's the first part of this dependence upon God that leads to all things working together. And the second part of it is loving God. Those who are called, and I guess the love part is the response to the call. It puts it together into faith, loving God. Jesus said loving God is not just an emotional experience, uh, a fond feeling, but it's action, If you love me, keep my commandments, John chapter 14, verse 15. So are you putting those two things together in your life? Love responding to the call of God in the gospel. As you do that, you'll see more and more the purpose behind the problem of your tests. And unlike Rachel and Leah, at least for them in the beginning, Unlike them, you'll emerge from that as gold, refined by fire. Stay with us. We'll continue talking about the life of Jacob next week on Wide Margins.